Hey everybody, welcome to episode 272 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm excited to talk exclusively today about the Boston Marathon coming up on Monday. Marathon Monday is back after a three-year absence. It last happened in 2019, pre-pandemic, and then obviously we had a virtual year in 2020, and then an October version in 2021, and we were back to our normal Marathon Mondays on Patriots Day here coming up this coming Monday in Boston. And I'm excited. I'll be there in person myself to watch and cheer and coach a bunch of rogue athletes that we'll have being there. And today I want to just talk about all things Boston. And this this episode will have a little bit for everybody, including those running Boston. I'm going to talk a little bit on history. I'm going to go through some predictions and previews for the race based on the elites that we have running in what are shaping up to be stacked fields on both sides, the men and the women's side. And I'm also going to give some final race planning tips for those that are actually racing on Monday. Incidentally, for those racing, you can also go back to episode 14, where I talk with my original podcast host, Steve, on an overarching plan for the Boston Marathon. And then I also have other tips in episode 252 that I recorded prior to the October version last fall. So go check out those episodes as well. But I'll be recapping a summary of how I think you should approach this race in the latter part of this discussion. Before we jump in on Boston, I did want to let you know of an opportunity to meet me if you'd like to in Boston. Again, I'll be there coaching and cheering on our rogue athletes there. We have a couple of rogue traditions. We have a pre-race talk that we always do on Sunday, and then we have a post-race party on Monday night. But if you'd like to come say hello to me, I'm going to be at the Weston Copley at 2.30, from 2.30 to 3.00. Come say hi. I'll be in the seventh floor North Star Room right before we kick off my talk to the road group at three. So come say hi between 2.30 and 3 if you'd like to meet me and or get some final words of wisdom wisdom on your Boston race there. Weston Copley, North Star Room, seventh floor between 2.30 and 3 on Sunday. So come say hello. We'd love to meet listeners if you're around. All right, let's jump in. Let's jump on in on this. I'm going to be talking, again, a little bit of history, some predictions, and how to watch for those that are going to be tuning in on Monday, and then we'll talk about final thoughts and plans for those that are racing. So that'll be my sequence today. First of all, I want to cover off a little bit on history. It is the 50th anniversary this Monday of women being officially added to the field. That happened in 1972, six years after Roberta Gibb was the first woman to Bandit Boston and finished Boston that we know of. The following year, Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially finish as she entered under her initials, KB Switzer, and she ultimately was the first official finisher in 1967. Roberta Gibb instantly ran that year as well as a bandit and actually ran faster than Catherine Switzer in both years, 66 and 67. But nevertheless, finally, in 1972, women were officially allowed to race and enter under their own category. Now, 50 years later, we have 50 years of history. One little historical vignette I wanted to give you that I find one of my favorite stories about Boston history. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. It goes back to that year 
1966 when Roberta Gibb was the first one to bandit and finish Boston. Keep in mind, she did that after taking a four-day bus ride from San Diego, where she lived at the time, to Boston prior to the race, and then got a ride from her parents to the race, showed up, jumped out of the bushes, and went and ran the race and ultimately finished. But there's a really cool story and vignette from that year that comes from a woman named Diana Chapman Walsh, who would later become the president of Wellesley College. She was at Wellesley at the time. She was a senior in college at the time. And she tells this story as she was there cheering inside the Wellesley Scream Tunnel. And her words are this. She said, that was my senior year at Wellesley. As I had done every spring since I arrived on campus, I went out to cheer the runners. But there was something different about that marathon day. Like a spark down a wire, the word spread to all of us lining the route that a woman was running the course. For a while, the screech tunnel fell silent. We scanned face after face in breathless anticipation until just ahead of her, through the excited crowd, a ripple of recognition shot through the lines and we cheered as we had never before. We let out a roar that day, sensing that this woman had done more than just break the gender barrier in a famous race. So that year, 1966, was the year that the famous Wellesley Scream Tunnel fell silent for brief moments in anticipation of Roberta Gibb and the history that she was making on that day. To me, that just thinking about that story gives me goosebumps because for those that have run Boston, you know that the Wellesley Scream Tunnel is the loudest part of the race in many ways. You can hear it coming from a mile away. As you approach mile 12, you can hear the screaming from up ahead from that Scream Tunnel. And when you go through there, the, the noise can simply be deafening. And yet on that day in 1966, it fell silent in recognition and irreverence to that history that was being made by Bobby Gibb. So, so cool. Such a cool story. And to me, a cool way to remember and think about what her run meant to the women that would come after her, including those that race on Monday. So hats off to Bobby Gibb for her bravery and to the day that the scream tunnel fell silent. Okay, that's my tribute to the 50th anniversary of women being able to race. Let's talk about the race itself, what you can expect as a fan. So you can watch and cheer on. So I wanted to give some details first on how to tune in. The race will be broadcast on USA Network. If you have cable, you can also watch it on the NBC Sports app. Kara Goucher and Paul Swangard will be on the call and will do an amazing job, I know. They're unfortunately going to be calling it from Connecticut instead of from Boston itself. So Kara is right now in Boston for media day, meeting athletes to get their backgrounds and stories. And then she's going to be taking a train tomorrow up to Connecticut where they will do the production there in the NBC studios. But they will both do a great job. So you can tune in. Coverage starts at 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central. I'll have about an hour of pre-show and then the races actually kick off at 9.37 for the elite men, 9.45 for the elite women, and then 10 a.m. for the rest of the field. At least the first wave goes off at 10 a.m. and then the waves will continue on until 11.15. So you can tune in on USA Network 
or check out the NBC Sports app here in the U.S. If you go to the Boston website, you can also get more details on where it might be shown on your country or in your country if you're listening from out or watching from outside of the U.S. That's what we've got on Monday. Tune in no later than 937 Eastern so that you can watch the men go off and then the elite women shortly thereafter. Incidentally, the order of that has changed. So the women used to start about 30 minutes before the men. Now they start eight minutes after. The intent of that shift is to allow a gap between the men's finish and the women's finish so that those final 20 to 30 minutes of the women coming to the finish line, at least the front running women, can be a focus of the call. The sacrifice there, and we'll have to see how they balance things, but the sacrifice there is that you basically have those two races starting at a very similar time, so you don't get that nice 30-minute window where you can just focus on the women's storylines at the beginning. And that, to me, is a little bit disappointing, especially on this 50th anniversary. I hope that NBC does a good job getting that balance right because the last few majors have not been good in terms of the coverage that they've been giving giving to the women's field. So it would be absolutely tragic if NBC gets this wrong, especially on this special anniversary for the women in the race. Now, I know Kara will do everything she can to give the right highlights to the women's field, but You've got to make sure that the, the camera people and the directors know to make sure they're bouncing back and forth and giving those two sides of the race equal time. So we will see how that plays out, but I am hopeful that they'll get the balance right. But either way, tune in by about 9.30 Eastern and you'll be able to see the whole thing. If you need to play hooky from work, do it. We all know that this is well worth the watch on Marathon Monday on Patriots Day. So that's where you can tune in. Let's talk about the fields. These are, because Boston is essentially the only major happening in this window, normally you would have London happening as well, but they've kept London, at least for this year, in the fall. And so Boston gets to stand alone in this window after Tokyo, and it was able to, as a result, attract really deep fields on both sides of this race. So you have some really pedigreed men and women lining up, and it's difficult. If you start looking at these resumes of the participants, it's difficult to make some predictions and pick who might win. But I'm going to break it down for you and try, and then we'll talk also about the U.S. fields in both on both sides, and I'll make my predictions for the top American as well. So let's look at the front of these races. First of all, we have to recognize that this is typically a race between the Kenyans and the Ethiopians on both sides. If you look at the last 12 years of men's races, 10 of those have been won by either a Kenyan athlete six or an Ethiopian athlete four. Japan has one, which is 2018 when Yuki won, and he is in this field. And then, of course, there was 2014 when Meb got his win. And then on the women's side, if you look at the last 12 years, 11 of the last 12 years have been won by either a Kenyan athlete or an Ethiopian athlete. The Kenyans have won the last seven of 12 Ethiopian athletes, four of 12. And of course, Des won in 2018 to be the only American exception of that list. So this is most likely a race on both sides for the top spot between the Kenyan and Ethiopian athletes in the field with the Kenyan athletes typically having a slight edge. If you look at history. 
but let's break it down. Well, again, we'll start with the men's. If you look at this field, I mean, the PRs on this list are absolutely amazing, including Burhanu Legacy, who has a 202 PR, fastest in the field. And then it just, it's a whole heap of men who've run under 206 after that. But the truth is, for a race like Boston, which is a challenging course that isn't paced, that doesn't have pacers, we know that PRs don't really matter. And while weather can be a variable that we should consider as something that can throw a wrench in things for these elites, it's looking right now like weather's going to be really, really good in that the temp should be low 40s at the start and probably still under 50 degrees by the time these elite athletes finish with a potential for a tailwind out of the West. So it could be a really fast day and really fast conditions, which means that all of these athletes, regardless of their PRs, have to be considered in the mix. Now, when I'm looking at Boston specifically in a race, again, that's not paced, then I am primarily concerned about results in other majors that are similar, like New York, which is a hilly challenging course that's not paced. And I'm also looking at history in Boston itself, because knowing this course is important. Although it is rare, and it should be noted that it's very rare to actually repeat in Boston. The last time that happened was 2006 to 2008, when a Kenyan athlete named Robert Chiriot was able to win three years in a row, but that's pretty rare. So winning back-to-back is tough, but I want to look for your results in races. Like, Are you on the podium at World Majors? And in particular, how have you done at the challenging majors like Boston and New York? Those are the things that matter most. Just to give you a brief example of that, Cisse Lima is one of the, the Ethiopian athletes that is on your list of favorites. He won London in 2021, has a history and a pedigree in the majors, especially the flat majors, that is really strong. But in 2019, in his first and only Boston, he ran a 222 which is significantly off of his PR and essentially was him sort of limping home metaphorically to that finish line in Boston in 2019. So you kind of have to throw the PRs out when we're looking at who might do well in each of these fields. But let me give you the quick rundown of the Ethiopian and Kenyan athletes that are in the conversation. And then I'll focus on and highlight the ones that I think are the most important to watch. You've got Burhanu Legacy. I mentioned him, fastest PR in the field. He's run a 202. He's won Tokyo twice. He's finished second in Berlin. His specialty is fast, fast and flat majors where he's done well at Tokyo and Berlin in particular. Then you have Evans Shabat. He's been fourth at London. He's next on your list of PRs, but he finished or actually he DNF'd at Boston in his only attempt in 2018. Of course, 2018 was the bad, crazy, cold, rainy, windy weather year. So a DNF there probably gets an asterisk, but he's never actually finished the Boston Marathon. Then you have Cisse Lima, who I just mentioned. He won London and is reigning champion there. And, but he ran 222 in Boston in 2019. So his history here, at least in that one attempt, isn't great. You've got Lalisa DeSisa, another Ethiopian athlete. He's won here twice. 
although it's been a while, 2013 and 2015. He also has won New York, so he has that on his resume as another challenging world major. He won the world championships in Doha in 2019, but he actually DNF'd at the Olympics in Tokyo, so we don't know what type of fitness he brings into this field. Then you have Benson Capruto, the 2021 champ, although that field where you had Chicago and Boston in back-to-back days and then London shortly thereafter and New York shortly thereafter, that field was a bit watered down. So most people would say that that, while a big win in Boston and proving that he can handle it, might be a knock on his resume in the sense that that field wasn't as deep as many have been in Boston history. But he also won the Prague Marathon in 2021, so he has a history of winning. Then you have Kenyan athlete Jeffrey Kamroar. He's a two-time New York champion, 2017-2019. He's won World Cross. He's done amazing things on the track. He's an all-around athlete, trains with Elid Kipchoge. He was supposed to run the 10,000 meters at Tokyo at the Olympics after qualifying at the Kenyan trials, but had to pull out due to issues with injury that he had really all of last year after actually being hit by a motorcycle in early 2021. And so the question about Jeffrey Kamroar is he absolutely has the pedigree to win, but is he healthy? So far they're saying the reports are from the press conferences that he is healthy, but you never know what that might mean. You then have Lemmy Berhanu, another Ethiopian athlete, 2016 champion, who actually finished second in the field last year. And then you have Albert Correer, who was the New York City Marathon champ in 2021. So he comes off a victory in a big major in New York last year on a challenging course. But again, maybe a slightly weaker field than is typical. Lastly, you've got Lawrence Chirono who has won Boston in 2019. He also won Chicago in that same year, finished fourth at the Olympics and proved solid fitness in 2021 by a win in Valencia. So that is our rundown. You've got about 10 athletes from Ethiopia and Kenya that are on the list of potential favorites who could be competing for a podium spot. And if I'm looking at those 10 athletes then I put asterisks next to three of them in particular because of their history at either Boston or on challenging courses or because of some of their recent results. And so if I look at that list, I like Lawrence Strono because he has the 2019 Boston victory. He showed good form last year, has also done well at things like the Olympic Games, So Lawrence Chirono is one that I think you have to asterisk and flag. Jeffrey Kamroar is the other because of that history at winning New York. It seems like he is back on his game and healthy again. And if that's true, he will absolutely be contending contending for the victory. And then I think you have to asterisk Albert Correer because of his victory and how he did it at New York in in 2021 last fall. Those would be my top three. And I'd put Lemmy Berhanu right on the outside of that group as a potential fourth and probably the leader on my list of Ethiopian athletes because of the fact that he finished second in Boston last year and has a victory here in the past. So if I'm making my predictions, I'm going to go with Lawrence Toronto for the win. 
because of his win in Boston in 2019 and his more recent proven form at the marathon distance. I'm going Jeffrey Kamroar for second, assuming that he's able to bounce back and be relatively healthy. I think he'll still be just shy of contending for the victory. And I'm going to go Albert Courier for third on the back of his New York City victory, which would mean a Kenyan sweep of the podium spots. That would be obviously huge for the athletes in Kenya. If I had to pick a spoiler on the Ethiopian side, it would be Lemmy Burhanu or Lalisa Desisa, who both have prior victories here in Boston, know how to run it well, and who, if are fit, can absolutely contend with the best of them. But this is going to be a crowded race for a very long time. I think you'll have many guys in this race through past Heartbreak Hill, and then it'll be a race over those final five miles as to who can finish the strongest coming out of those Newton Hills. It's going to be fascinating to watch, and I think it could come down to Boylston for the final stretch of this race as to who is able to separate for one, two, and three. So that's those are my predictions. Toronto, Camarillo, career on the men's side for a Kenyan sweep. We will see how it goes. On the U.S. side for the men, we do have a pretty deep field field there as well. We've got Olympians Jared Ward and Jacob Riley. Both in this field, we've got Scott Fauble, who's done really well and has his PR at Boston. We've got sub-210 guy Colin Benny as well, and we have Elkanah Kabet, who finished fourth in New York, this past fall. And then of course, CJ Albertson, who finished 10th in Boston in October after having, I believe a two minute lead at some point in that race as he went off really hot from the gun. So my choice on top American will come from this group. And I think if you look at the history of the athletes in this race, Elkanah Kabet and Scott Fobble for me, bubble to the top. I like C.J. Albertson and what he has done recently, but I think he's going to be probably a little bit too aggressive, which is going to potentially cost him in this race, especially given the fact that I suspect he won't be able to get away from this field with good weather. So my prediction for Top American will be to will go to Elkanah Cabet coming on the back of his fourth place at New York. I think he has proven that he can be strong on a challenging course and has that history and pedigree at the marathon that I think will allow him to hang deep into this race. If I were to pick a second marathon American, I'm actually going to go with Scott Fobble because he's now training under a new coach, seems to have things together after running a 61 minute and change half in Houston earlier this year. And he knows Boston well, has run here. And I think this is his opportunity to bounce back. Plus, He's trying to get a sponsor, still unsponsored. Apparently he's racing in a Lululemon singlet that he bought himself on Monday. So I'm cheering for Scott to make his presence known in this field so that he can hopefully get a sponsor. So I'm going to go Elkanekabat and Scott Fobble, top two Americans. I'd probably pick CJ Albertson for third after that in that order. So there you go. Those are my predictions on the men's side. On the women's side, again, have a deep field. And I would say in this case, the PRs matter a little bit more because we do have a group of women that have PRs that are a cut above some of the others, especially those Kenyan athletes. There's two in particular that I think everybody would universally say that two of them are your favorites. You've got two Kenyan athletes to mention here, Perez 
Jeptichir. She is your Olympic gold medalist from Tokyo, and she also came back after that and won New York in 2021 in the fall. So has a solid pedigree in raced marathons and on challenging courses. You've got second behind her in the list of, the list of favorites would be Joyce Lynn Jep Koskai. She is your London champ. London Marathon champ has also won New York City before 2019, so she has a history on tough courses. I think most people would say those are your two favorites, and everybody seems to be picking between one or the other for the victory. I'll tell you what I'm picking in a second, but let's give the the rundown of the rest of the field. The other Ethiopian and Kenyan athletes that are worth mentioning, the third by way of PR has a 217 PR is Dejitu Azamira. She has finished second in London, has a 217 PR, is that young up-and-coming athlete that could challenge the two Kenyans. You've also got Edna Kiplagat, who's 42, but has won this race before and finished second a couple of times. She knows this course well. She's also been on a world major podium 10 times. So when she's in the race, she just gets on podiums. She finished second in 2021 as well. So she was right there in the mix back in October. And then you have Violet Sheptu Lagat. She finished second in New York behind Perez. Jeptichir is Bernard Lagat's sister, you might remember from that finish in New York in November and is an up-and-coming track athlete that has moved to the marathon and is making waves. So those are your Kenyan and one Ethiopian athlete that is going to be at the front of this field. And so the question is, how is it going to break down? Where are we going to see these athletes slot in? And before we talk about podium that we have to mention the primary American favorite who could have a chance to podium, which is Molly Seidel. She obviously is your bronze bronze medalist from Tokyo set the American course record at New York running a 224 on a tough course. She knows Boston well, having lived there and she is just a gamer when it comes to racing. I think if the weather was bad, that would probably favor her a little bit more considering her PR is a little bit off of the PR of the favorites. But I guarantee you, Molly's going to be in this race. She's going to stick her nose in it and she's going to fight as long and hard as she can. Will that be enough to get on the podium? I don't know. And I think it'll take one of these other top Kenyan or Ethiopian athletes faltering a bit for Molly to squeeze in there. But I think she'll be right on the cusp. She'll be right on there vying probably for that third spot on the podium between third, fourth, and fifth would be my guess about her finish. And fingers crossed, hopefully she'll be able to get it done. I certainly would hesitate to bet against her. But in this case, if I'm picking, I will be picking against her. I do think Molly will be your top American in this field. But I'm going to go with Perez Jeptichir as your champion on the backs of winning Tokyo and New York. I think she has the ability to win a race like this on a challenging course. And I think she's just simply a cut above. She also has head to head victories versus Joycelyn Jepkoskai from Valencia last year. I think Joycelyn's going to be your second runner in the field. And then I'm picking Edna Kiplagat, the veteran Boston runner for third, because she knows how to run this race. And in And in particular, she knows how to finish this race. Plus, she finished second in 2021 and I think is 
still on form based on that to do what she's going to do here at 42. Mother of five children too, by the way, who lives in the U.S. here in Colorado. So those are my picks. Chapter Cheer, Jeb Koskai, and Kip Legott for another Kenyan podium sweep on the women's side. I'm going to pick Molly Seidel for the top American. And then the question is, who's going to be next of the other Americans? You've got Des Linden in this field. This will be perhaps her final competitive Boston. I don't know. We'll see. She obviously has the victory in 2018. Knows this course very, very well. Has finished second in 2011 as well by only a couple of seconds. So you can't count her out. But I think she would be someone that would be more in the conversation if the conditions were really poor. You've also got Stephanie Bruce, who's 38. This will be her last Boston before she retires at the end of this year. And she says she's fit. She says she's ready. I think she'll stick her nose in it because she's got nothing to lose, but is just not quite at the same level of some of these other women. You've also got Nell Rojas, who was the top American in 2021, who finished sixth. And you have Sarah Vaughn, two other athletes that could be mixing it up at the front of this field, but I think don't quite have the experience and the pedigree to challenge for a podium spot, but we'll definitely be in the mix for potentially that second American spot. And so if I look at this field behind Molly Seidel, I actually like Nell Rojas as a choice there because of her result in the fall and because she seems to only be getting stronger from there. And I'd probably pick Des Linden for third American if I were choosing a list. So there you go. Molly Nell and Des will be my top three on the American side, and hopefully Molly can squeeze on the podium, but we will see. So there you go. Those are the breakdowns of the two fields. It looks like, based on my review, a potential for a really, really dominant Kenyan performance on Marathon Monday, which which obviously would be huge for them. We shall see. Okay, so that's how you can cheer as a fan. Now let's talk about Boston, the Boston experience as an athlete, as a runner. I want to give you some final thoughts and tips there for those who might be doing it this Monday or perhaps for those who might be doing it in a future Marathon Monday. Let's, let's talk about it and break it down. And to do that, I want to first introduce, introduce some statistics to the mix. We have a runner in our virtual training group or podcast best based training group. His name is Mike C and he is a data guy and he did some data analysis on prior Boston results based on the data he could pull. He was able to pull about 26,000 data points between 2015 and 2017 Boston marathon results. And he wanted to look at those results and see what percentage of the athletes are negative splitting on this course. And then For those that were able to negative split, how did that play out throughout the different 5K chunks of the course? And honestly, the results to me were pretty fascinating. He, again, looked at three years, 2015, 2016, 2017 results. In those years, out of about 26,000 results, only 4.4%, less than one out of every 20 runners, was able to run a negative split in Boston. The percentage was highest actually in 2015 when the weather was better, and that was 7.6%. But in those other years, 2016 and 2017, when the weather wasn't as good, you had those numbers down in the 2 to 3% range. 
which is just absolutely mind boggling to me that it's that challenging to get this course right. I mean, I knew it intellectually because I've run it and personally I have not been able to execute a negative split yet on the course, even though I know that's the right way to do it. But it's shocking to see those numbers actually play out this way in the results. So only 4.4% of those 26,000 plus results were a negative split. And then if you look at the positive split category, everybody else out of that group, which would be the other roughly 95% of the field, 81% of those runners actually ran a positive split of five minutes or more with the highest group over 50% running more than 10 minutes slower in the second half of the race. So again, breaking this down, less than 5% of runners in those three years negative split at Boston of the remaining 95%, 81% of them positive splitted, meaning their second half was at least five minutes or more slower than their first half of the race. It's just staggering to see those numbers actually play out in reality. I knew that intuitively, but to see those numbers in, in that form is just a little bit surprising to me. It's definitely more extreme than I expected. And it just goes to show you how difficult this course is. And so Mike actually asked when we were having our exchange on our message board, he said, you know, it's surprising to me that it's that extreme. And it is, it's surprising to me too. But he was kind of asking that question as someone who will be doing Boston himself for the first time this year. He's asking, how is that possible? How is it possible that some of your best runners, those that can qualify and be at Boston are struggling to get this course right? One reason we know is because the course is tough. It's a net downhill, sure, but most of that net downhill occurs in those first four miles. And that first mile is one of the more extreme downhills of the race. Plus, then you have rollers really for the rest of the way. And those big hills in Newton, where you have to climb and all the way through to heartbreak. And then even at the end, when you get some downhill at the end, you still have some challenging sections over the final five miles as well. So it's just a course that is difficult. And I kind of liken it to, if I were to use an analogy, you can think of it like Greek mythology, the sirens in Greek mythology, which are these half bird, half female creatures that, that, sang this beautiful, sweet song on an island, and they would lure in sailors as they passed by, and those sailors would start sailing towards the songs of the sirens, lured in by the sweet music, only to have their ships dashed on the rocks as they approach. And I feel like the Boston course is kind of like that. It lures you in with its downhill nature, with some of those what I call booby traps early in the race that are those early downhills it lures you in. And then you, and you're also lured in by just the whole environment and the energy of it all being a part of something that many of us strive sometimes many years or even a lifetime to achieve. So Boston is the sirens of a marathon. And if you listen to that sweet music and get too close to the rocks, you will be dashed as well. Boston is a course, if you're greedy, that will chew you up and spit you out. So it's 
it's challenging on its own, even if you were to run this course as a standalone without all of the other elements. But then you layer in the other elements, the logistics of it and the energy of it. And if you can imagine, for those that haven't done it, 28 to sometimes 30,000 runners all waking up early on Marathon Monday, eager and excited to tackle the the legacy that is the Boston Marathon, the oldest continuously running marathon in the world other than the Olympic Games. You want to be a part of history. You've earned your spot as a part of history. You get up early that day with all of that energy and anticipation, and then you wait. Then you wait. You get on the bus. You wait on the bus. You get bussed out to Hopkinton High School and Middle School where they throw you into a field with 28 to 30,000 other people that are eager to get out there and all of their energy and nerves and anticipation all kind of bubbles together with yours to create this environment that's just energized. And that's a cool thing to be a part of, but it's a tough thing for staying calm and present and grounded when it comes to then going to do your race. So you have all of that. You're waiting in a field for a couple of hours. Then you get called out to go to the start line. And guess what? You get thrown onto the road. You have to walk through Hopkinton for almost a full mile from the athlete's village to the starting line in order to get to the race itself at that point. And so you're ready to go. You're ready to move. And then you're, again, hurry up and wait to walk to the start line. Then you finally get to the start line and you've got Again, thousands of people that you're surrounded by with all that same nervous energy and anticipation that are all ready to go and all have been waiting literally hours that morning to go. And all of that energy has been bubbling up inside of you and basically wasting energy that could be put into the race without you really being able to help it. And then finally, after hours of waiting, that gun goes off or the wave is let out and you get to go. You finally get to release some of that energy and, and, and anticipation, some of that adrenaline. And guess what? In those opening miles, you're immediately thrown off a cliff, so to speak, in a sense that you have one of your steepest downhills right after the start line. And so that sucks you out a little faster than perhaps you want. You're also surrounded by literally thousands of people that are at your pace or faster than you. Most of us who have qualified for Boston, if you're in another race, you typically find that once you get going, there's always a little bit of adrenaline at the start, but then things kind of sit, settle down and thin out as you're able to find your own rhythm within the race. But in Boston, it's not like that. It never thins out, even for the fastest among us. It is crazy in terms of the volume of runners that are surrounding you the entire race, even for those that are on the faster end of the spectrum. And so you're sucked out, not just by the course and the early downhill, but also by that momentum of the crowd of people that are all faster than you or as fast as you who are trying to get to that finish line in Boylston as quickly as they can. And so you get sucked out with the crowd as well. And it's not about just getting out a little quick and then settling in. No, it can continue to pull you along for the entire race if you let it. And then you layer in the fact that there are literally fans from the start line all the way to the finish line in what can be some of the loudest sections of marathon cheering that you'll experience in the marathon. 
and that crowd of that energy and that crowd also propels you along to do things early in the race that you shouldn't be. And if you go out too fast in Boston, you will hit the choppy waters and the rocks that the sirens will lure you into and you'll end up as one of those 81% out of the 95% that end up with five plus minute positive splits. It's just inevitable. And so if you're a first timer in Boston, I would highly encourage you to have an extremely conservative plan because you've got all of that to deal with. Not just a challenging course, but also all of those layers of energy and logistics that end up just being, frankly, overwhelming. And that's okay. It's okay for it to be overwhelming. You got here, you did it, you hit your goal. But I would just encourage you to recognize that the most important part of your first Boston is enjoying it, is relishing it, is making it your victory lap for those that have been trying to get here for many years or many attempts. Please, please slow down enough to enjoy it, to learn it so that you can come back and master all of those variables someday. So that's a little bit of a preamble, but I want to give you my quick cliff notes plan on how I think about tackling Boston in basically four sections. And this is how I laid it out for our group in October when I was doing my pre-race talk. Four sections. I've got four C's to think about to make it easy to meditate on. You can use these words potentially as mantras as you go. But you've got the initial C, the first C, the first section will be calm. That's from mile one to mile four. Again, it's not downhill, but you have to stay calm. Stay calm in the athlete's village. Find a way to distract yourself, to keep yourself grounded. Stay calm as you walk to the start line. Stay calm when that gun goes off. Resist the temptation to get out too fast. So I like to tell people to start about 30 seconds slower than marathon pace at the beginning, even going down that hill, which means with all the adrenaline of the start, they're going to start this race kind of like you're starting a long run. It should feel that easy to you because all of your senses about pace are going to be off and you're going to think you're going slower than you actually are. And so start slow and then slow down some more. Keep it super mellow in those opening miles. Start about 30 seconds slower work down from there over the first three to four miles. There are some undulations in those early miles. So you have net downhill, but you do have a few climbs as well. So just stay calm on those as well. Don't press any of those early hills as you make your way to about mile four, where the course more or less levels out between four and 16 miles. You do have some downhills. You do have some rollers along the way, but that is your quote flattest section of the course. There are no two miles that look the same in Boston, but if you're going to have relatively consistent miles, it is from four to about 16. So that means we get to my second C. The second C for this part of the course would be cruise. Cruise. This should be a section of the course where you put it on cruise control. You dial into to those efforts and paces right around marathon pace, and you try to make that feel as easy and comfortable as possible. There will be some ups and downs during that section. Don't, don't get greedy on the downhills. Don't press the uphills. Just kind of cruise up and down. Try to 
use as little energy as possible through this section. And when in doubt, be conservative from miles four to 16, because you want to make sure you go into Newton feeling good and strong. Now it's important to note between 15 and 16, you have another big downhill on the course and it's very, very tempting. Like the sirens can be tempting. It's tempting to get greedy there. Don't do it. Use that as an opportunity to recover, to reload, to get ready and primed for Newton to come because from 16 to 21, you have the four climbs that are Newton Hills. For this section of the course, my C for you will be conserve. Conserve. While these hills individually aren't that challenging, I think in the grand scheme of things, they're relatively gradual climb, but they're a little bit long, and so they can be a bit of a grind. But what you want to do is conserve on these climbs. Don't fight these hills. This is not where you want to press on the hills. You've got four climbs. Get up and over each of them. You can use the downhill sides to recover and prep for the next, but just don't fight your climbs in this section. And you'll find that in this section, you're going to be anywhere from 15 to potentially 25 seconds per mile slower as you go through this section. And that's okay. That's a part of this race. You're not going to quote win Boston here, but you might lose it. You're not going to make your race here, but you could lose it. So be conservative, conserve your energy up and over these climbs through Newton. Once you get to the top of Heartbreak Hill at mile 21, that's when we shift into our final section where the C is to crush. The C is to crush. You've got some nice downhills right after Heartbreak. And as you head into Boston, things start to flatten out a little bit. But essentially what you want to do from here to the finish is crush it, press and go for it. This is when you want to start picking up the pace, really using the downhills, chasing people, going fishing, really pressing all the way to the end when you make that right on Hereford and left on Boylston. Once you hit Boylston, you've got 600 meters to go. You'll be able to see the finish line from a long way off, but that is the coolest and most magical 600 meters, I think, in all of our sport with the crowd support and the energy that is there on Boylston that you feel not just present with you in the moment, but also to me, there's this palpable history about that spot that you'll feel. And at that point, keep your eyes up on that finish line and let it all out on the course to the last step. So that's what you have to do. And if I go back to Mike C's analysis and those that had the strongest negative splits in Boston were the ones that started most conservatively and then ran their best over that final five miles after 35K, after Heartbreak Hill. And so that is the blueprint for this course. Start conservatively, finish strong. As much as you want to think that it looks different, the data supports it being exactly what we think it is. Now, it's way easier said than done. As I said, only one out of 20 people are able to do it. So it's an elusive thing. And as someone who has raced Boston myself four times, still haven't done it myself. I know this is the right way to do it, but I still haven't done it myself. So it is not easy. So I want you to be conservative and give it your best shot. Stay calm. 
through those first four miles, cruise from four to 26, conserve through the Newton Hills, and then crush the end. That is the blueprint for a good day in Boston. And if there was ever going to be a good day, knock on wood, it looks like the course and the weather are shaping up for perfection. So it's going to be there for the taking if you're smart about it. So I'm going to wrap this episode here, but I'm going to leave you with just one final thought, which is that I want you, if you're racing, to go into this race having already claimed victory, having already claimed victory. Certainly have your goal for the day. Certainly commit to executing the plan that I just talked about and finishing strong with negative splits in Boston. That is a worthy victory to claim as well. But before you get there, I want to encourage you to claim victory before, before the start line. Because you got to this point. Many of you have tried for years or many attempts to get to Boston. So just getting to this point is victory already. So note those victories to get to this point. Be thankful for the opportunity to be here. And for those that have been here before, be thankful for the opportunity to continue to show up and represent the running community on this course. Because it is an honor and a privilege to give your all on this course. And so recognize the victories that have gotten to this point. Be grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this first Boston on Patriots Day in three years. Claim victory and gratitude before you start because that will help put you in that right mind frame to then let go and execute the plan as best you can on race day. Those are my final words. I'll be there. I'll be cheering for all of you. If you're there, come see me at the Weston Copley North Star Room, 7th floor, 2.30 to 3 on Sunday. We'd love to see you. Otherwise, as always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.